Are you looking for a job? Do you know someone who's looking for a job? Then check out our job board over at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. Whether you want a full-time job or you're looking for something temporary or freelance, we've got you covered. This week, Olark in San Francisco is looking for a senior UX designer. Society of Grown-Ups in Boston, Massachusetts is looking for an interaction designer. And Revision Path is still looking for staff writers. So check out the Revision Path job board at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs and find your next job today. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry. And before we get into this week's interview, of course, I want to talk about our sponsors, MailChimp, Hover, and Creative Market. MailChimp, of course, is the premier email service provider choice for entrepreneurs and small businesses. Join more than 7 million people who use MailChimp to design and send 500 million emails every day. Sign up today at MailChimp.com. Do you need a new domain for your next project? Then check out Hover. Each domain comes with free private domain registration, unlimited domain forwarding, and world-class customer support. They also have this great feature called Hover Connect that lets you automatically connect any of your Hover domains that you buy to popular services like Tumblr and Squarespace and Shopify. So go ahead and grab yourself a domain today and use our promo code GIVETHANKS and save 10% off your purchase. Creative Market sells fonts, themes, graphics, photos, and a whole lot more starting at only $2 per item. They give away a selection of free goods every week, and they've got great bundle promotions every month. Right now, the November Big Bundle is going on. That's 91 items, including some great fonts and graphics and some other stuff for just $39. So go over there, pick that up, and if you see something else that you like, use our promo code REVISIONPATH and save 20% off your purchase. Here's our Patreon fundraising campaign update. So right now, we're still holding steady at 27 patrons for a combined total of $192 per month. Again, a huge thanks to all of you that have already pledged your support and your appreciation for the show. It really does mean a lot. If you want to become a patron of Revision Path and get access to some really great perks like special giveaways, early access to future episodes, or a monthly Google Hangout with me and other Revision Path supporters, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash revision path and make that happen. Pledge levels are super affordable. They start at just $1 per month. All right, we've got a new review here from iTunes. This comes from the Culture AD Review. Reviews titled So Necessary, Very Smart Show, and it reads as follows. Great entertaining show with really relevant discussions from true everyday heroes. Thanks so much, Culture AD. Of course, this comes from Craig Brim that was on episode 106, so thanks so much for leaving that comment. I really do appreciate it. If you haven't subscribed to us already on iTunes, please do that. Leave a rating and a review. I'll read your review right here on the show, just like I did with Culture AD. All right, now for this week's interview. I talked with Dory Tunstall, Associate Professor of Design Anthropology at Swinburne University of Technology in Melbourne, Australia. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. Hi, I'm Dory Elizabeth Tunstall. I am an Associate Professor of Design Anthropology at Swinburne University of Technology in Melbourne, Australia. And as a design anthropologist, I try to figure out the relationship between the values that people hold 
the designs that make those valuables something that they can see, smell, taste, ex- and then how then people actually experience those values through the design itself. And then I use that understanding or knowledge to figure out what are the way we need to design new things so that there's a closer alignment between the values that people want and the experiences that they actually have. How did you get into design anthropology? I'm really interested in that that kind of correlation between those two seemingly different fields, but the way that you just described it kind of makes it seem like they really work together better than I thought. Well, if you think about the fact that uh, design is the making of everything, and mm-hmm. anthropology is the study of the reasons, in many ways, why we make everything, <laughs> why we believe what we believe, why do we share certain practices, that all of those things come together in the sense that the reason why we design is to make uh, culture tangible. But at the same time, the only way, one of the ways in which we experience culture is through the things that we design. And so they're like, I always say, they're like the superpowers together in the sense that anthropology gives you an understanding of the world and design gives you the tools to figure out how you can recreate the world in hopefully a better, more progressive way. And so came together, I guess, for me that I've always had a background as much in the arts as I did in anthropology. So my undergraduate degree is in anthropology from Bryn Mawr College in Philly. Go Philly. Okay. <laughs> and so, but I was always a strange anthropology student in that I might turn in an essay or I might turn in a comic strip or I might turn in a drawing or I might turn in a play. So I was always very creative around how I expressed my knowledge of like uh-huh. the understanding of people, which continued into uh, graduate school. So I went to get my PhD from Stanford. And I worked on tourism in Ethiopia, which is kind of, I guess, my first foray into design when, as part of my field research, I was working with the Ethiopian Tourism Commission. And so I would go around and just evaluate their posters and evaluate their information that they were communicating to tourists and figure out. I didn't know the word design in the formal sense, how the design of those was affecting the perception of Ethiopia as a country and What's the gap between the perception and the reality that tourists face? And part of that was helping them redesign brochures or think about sort of tourism programs to kind of bring things together. So that's kind of where I sort of formally brought those two fields together. But then it wasn't until I graduated and went to go work in industry at Sapient Corporation where I worked hand in hand with designers. And this is at the height of the dot-com boom. (laughs) And then I was like, oh, now I know what tribe I belong to. (laughs) I belong to I belong to this designer tribe who goes around and tries to make things and make things better. And so then I that's where formally I first heard of the term of design anthropology with some of the anthropologists who work at Intel Corporation and other places. And then it all sort of came together And I decided that I wanted to teach people to do what it is that I did in terms of bringing together anthropology and design. So I established the bits of the program at University of Illinois at Chicago, 
And then I moved to Australia to develop the Masters of Design Anthropology program at Swinburne. Well, that's quite a journey. Yeah. <laughs> I did. Well, it's always a challenge because, you know, young students come up to me and they say, how can I have your career? And I'm like, ah, it's not a direct path. <laughs> you know, it's like I was supposed to be a professor at University of Chicago or Harvard in anthropology. I'm not supposed to be doing the things that I've been doing. And so I can't, mm-hmm. you know, I can't advise you how to have my path, but I can advise you to find your own path and stay open to the opportunities and constantly challenge your assumptions around what you should be doing or where you should be going. And that's about as close as you get to following my career path. So you first heard about design anthropology when you were working at Sapien. I guess, where are the roots of that concept? Where does that come from? The first, the story that I heard in terms of who was the first design anthropologist who used that term was Ken Anderson, who works at Intel Corporation. But at the time, he was working for Apple. And he says the story was that he was advised that he needed to have the word design in his title. And he's an anthropologist. So he put on his name card, design anthropologist, and then he was (laughs) accepted into the tribe. And then I think, again, like there's a small, close-knit group, I guess, of anthropologists who've worked in various design fields. So we all kind of know each other. And we all sort of like that term of design anthropologists. And I think if formalized, there's an anthro design group that was started by Natalie Hansen in about, I want to say, 2000. And so then that gave a sort of platform for us regardless of what our job titles are, like only as a professor has my job title been design anthropologist before it was, you know, I was a user experience modeler. I was a user experience researcher, experience strategist, all these different terms. But having that community, we then could claim our identity as design anthropologist. And so many of us have been calling ourselves that for at least the last 15 years or so. When you were teaching at the University of Illinois, at Chicago. What was that experience like in terms of teaching the students? What was kind of the Chicago design scene like? Did you find that you got a lot of support around what you were doing? Yeah. And part of that was that I ended up teaching at University of Illinois at Chicago because I got involved with Design for Democracy. And when I was at Sapient, I was the sort of volunteer researcher for design for the democracy trying to figure out what the voting experience was so that the designers could go like Marsha Lawson and Stephen Malamed who is an industrial designer so that all of them could work with the students at UIC to help figure out what that new experience of voting should have been. So part of me moving back to academia was to figure out how I could better support design for democracy because I was working as a consultant at then Arc Worldwide and putting in the consultant hours and then doing the side work with Design for Democracy. And so I spoke to Marsha Lawson, who had then been the director of the design programs at UIC and said, you know, actually, I think I want to come back to academia, both to support Design for Democracy, but also, again, I follow all these students saying, I want to do design anthropology And there isn't a program to support them doing that. And so she made it happen and I came and it was great. And it really showed to me what's really important is developing hybrid practices. And what I mean by that is the 
there's a lot of researchers who work with design and sometimes my design colleagues complain because they collect all this data and then there's what do we do with this information what do we do with it they no one knows and because I think I'm a bit of a hybrid myself I knew kind of what the design decisions that young designers needed to make and so within that I was able to craft a program that had intensive rigorous research but at the same time all that research was applied to the types of design decisions that the students need to make about, well, at the conceptual level, what should be my main idea, to very particular design decisions around, you know, what's the appropriate font and color that I need to, again, make tangible the values that I'm trying to express through this design. It was a great experience in terms of trial and error. (laughs) Figuring out how to get into the mindset of a designer and then craft a program that brought the rigor of anthropology, but not in a way that was alienating, in a way that was quite embraced by the students. And it's great because uh, the students that I work with, I'm all on Facebook (laughs) with now. And every once in a while, they say, you know, they'll send me a message saying, you know, I was doing this project and I was thinking of, you know, this particular thing that I learned in your class or I was doing a pitch and I I used this particular visual annotated bibliography tool that you did to sort of lay out the landscape for it. And so it's really nice to be still in contact with the students and see how they have developed and evolved the ideas and the tool sets that was provided to them through the program. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, I see awesome that they're still able to use that, but then also that they also still really kind of keep in touch with you and let you know that the things that you've taught them are things that they're still using to this day. Yeah. I mean, the interesting thing that most of my students say about whatever program that they do, it's like a conversion experience that once you come out of a class or a program, you're changed, partly because you have, I think, a more critical perspective on the world, but not in a way that's debilitating, but in a way that you then say, okay, how can I use my design skills to change things? That there's a huge increase in confidence because we work a lot about how you communicate your ideas in multiple ways. So sometimes you need to write, so we'll work on writing. Sometimes you need to make stuff, so we'll work on making stuff. Sometimes you need to do oral performance will work on those tools as well. And so they end up having a lot of, I feel, a lot of confidence in what they're doing and their ability to really reshape the world. Like you mentioned earlier, after you finished teaching at University of Illinois in Chicago, then you moved halfway around the world (laughs) to Australia. (laughs) What facilitated that? Like, What was the, the cause for that? I think at the time, the dean uh, Swinburne's faculty of design was Ken Friedman, who had been a mentor for me for probably about three or four years then. And he sent me an email saying, what is it that you want to do? What's your dream job? And I wrote back what it was in terms of, you know, I wanted to gain some administrative skills. I wanted to build a master's in design anthropology program. He gave me those positions. He gave me those opportunities to build that. So I built the design anthropology program within one year. 
I got the position of associate dean of learning and teaching of what was then, I did not know, one of the largest standalone faculty of designs in the world, about 2,400 students. Wow. Yeah. And so in that sense, I think there was two things that was driving it, sort of desire to do that. But it was also a lot of encouragement from my family in the sense that they were saying, girl, none of us even know where Australia is on the map. <laughs> you better go live there so we can go visit. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so uh, I did take that under consideration in the sense of like, okay, you know, what is this African-American girl from Indiana going to be doing in Australia halfway around the world? And what does that mean in terms mm-hmm. of, I guess, the the opportunities afforded and the possibilities of what you can do as a person in our community and taking kind of serious that role as a role model in the sense of trying to push the boundaries of what it is that you can do. So I went and it's, it's been amazing. And I have a really close relationship with members of the Aboriginal Indigenous community in Melbourne and it's interesting because we all vibe on kind of the black thing, although yeah. black means something totally different <laughs> in the Australian context. But there's so many similarities in the sense of like, you know, the things that they talk about in, in their history are very similar to the things that we've experienced in our community here in the U.S., that the racism in terms of the color of your skin is uh, quite rampant <laughs> in the same way the health disparities, the incarceration disparities are all the same. So we can, even though we're from totally different places and totally different histories, we can sit down and really understand each other and the importance of engaging in that struggle against institutions of white supremacy and the importance of, like, again, design education for me in Melbourne in terms of being a tool for social justice for in that sense, the indigenous communities um, in Australia, which is what I've built over the last six years as well. It's amazing how, I guess, the experiences that black people tend to have across the diaspora, how we can have this sort of shared empathy. Mm. And it's very interesting how you note that you're still able to sort of vibe with them on that level, which I guess could also help on a I don't know, maybe for them on a uh, like a motivational level to see someone that looks like them in this kind of position doing this kind of work where maybe they may not have seen someone like that before. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that was really one of my goals when I went to Swinburne in the position of associate dean is actually to build indigenous knowledge and indigenous content into the curriculum. And that's one of the first things that I did working with then who was a colleague, Professor Norm Sheehan. So especially the postgraduate program where the first unit and the first module of that unit everyone has to take is an in indigenous knowledge and two-dimensional design where mm-hmm. we um, compare the Bauhaus perspectives on point, line, and plane and all the different principles of design to that uh-huh. of indigenous Australians as they express it through their artwork and their design. And it's really quite transformative because every student who's in our master's program have had to go through that. And we have a lot of international students. Uh And so their introduction to indigenous culture and as of last year, 
All of the units in this are taught by staff of Indigenous heritage, which was really important for me to sort of make sure that they're being taught by the Indigenous community. Yeah. Um, it's been great in the sense that it's, the students are really engaged with understanding the Indigenous history and the resilience in the community. And we built four units in our um, the Master's of Design Anthropology program as a, a potential specialization in Indigenous knowledge. Uh-huh. And that's been great because uh, two of the four units, they have to do service learning with an Indigenous community or an Indigenous organization. And so that's bringing the students and the, in most cases, their design skills directly into the institutions and the organizations so that they understand working with Indigenous community, but that the Indigenous community also understands how design can be used effectively as a tool for the challenges that they're facing and the goals that they want to establish for their community. Go ahead. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Whoa. I mean, because my basis of, of knowledge of this is just here in the U.S., I don't know if there are any like design programs in the U.S. that do that same type of cultural reach to like native communities here or, or black community. You know what I mean? Yeah. Where it's it's looking at sort of taking these sort of, I guess, traditional European ways of design, like you mentioned with, with the Bauhaus school, and then mapping that to the type of art and things that we see from these other communities. That is amazing. (laughs) Thank you. I mean, I'm really quite proud of the work in the sense that uh, the members of the indigenous community have, in in the same way, again, some people in our community, quite antagonistic relationship with the academic institutions due to racism. And what has made me most proud is them feeling very comfortable and confident in working in the uh, university and feeling very confident in terms of teaching these students, most of whom are not of indigenous heritage, and feeling that they can guide them to a deeper understanding of their community and feel safe, Yeah, feel safe within the academy. And so for me, that's probably the thing I'm most proud of in terms of what I've been able to do at Swinburne. How are your students at Swinburne different from the students that you had in Chicago? They're not much different. And I think that's because those who have chosen to pursue design anthropology, I always talk about it, it's like the land of misfit toys. (laughs) (laughs) So it's like, you know, they're a designer and, and they say this every time. It's like they're a designer and they were maybe working and they were feeling dissatisfied with the, the work they were doing, like it felt like it didn't have enough meaning for them. And so they came across design anthropology in one way or another, and they got interested in it and they decided to join. Or they're a researcher and they're like, you know, we do these really great reports and people don't read them. I want to actually have a more direct impact and that's what design can do. So it's always the students even at UIC who I worked with were also quite odd (laughs) in the sense of like they wanted to make sure that their work that they do 
had exceptionally deep meaning and deep impact. And that's the same, I think, in terms of the students that I have in Australia. And I think it's just because if you're drawn to design anthropology, you have a similar profile in terms of, like I said, your commitment most of the time to social justice. Even if you may not be able to directly engage in it, you understand that there's inequality and you understand that design can help and not just be a hindrance. That uh, I guess the other similarities that they have is that they're exceptionally passionate about design and design making a difference. So I think they probably have more similarities than they do differences, although there are great differences between Australians and Americans. I just think I, I draw a certain kind people mm-hmm. where we all have probably more things in common than we do things that are different from each other. So what are some of those ways? Because I, I know that in the 80s here in the U.S., there was like this weird kind of Austro-American love affair with like Crocodile Dundee. <laughs> and You know what I mean? Like we had this certain <laughs> perception of Australia and Australians. What are some of the ways that I guess since you've lived there, you know, how are they different? How are we the same? Well, I guess one of the things that's interesting in terms of being the same is that because we're like these large land masses, you know, both the United States and Australia are almost the same size. We both have a history of, I guess, decimation, genocide of our indigenous communities. Uh, uh, That we also have the importation of forced labor on the one hand, through convict labor in Australia, and the other hand, slavery um, yeah. in the United States. That in terms of our, I guess, our makeup in terms of like the amnesia that one has towards social injustices, the kind of challenges and difficulties of dealing with true multiculturalism, the history of xenophobia, that it produces kind of characteristics in the people that I think are very similar in its diversity. I mean, I think there is the Australian as well as the American version of the, you know, quote unquote redneck. There is, again, like I said, there's great similarities between the indigenous communities of the Australian, the indigenous of the indigenous and the black communities in uh, the United States. There's a love of independence. Those things I think are very quite similar. There is a, a language around fairness and merit, meritocracy, which again, doesn't find itself in the institutions which are quite biased. But it opens possibilities because there is that language where you can, on an individual level, be accepted in a system based on their perception of merit. There are differences in terms of there's a greater focus on labor history in Australia. Like there's still very strong union movements in Australia there isn't the same belovedness of the gun. <laughs> like in Australia, assault weapons are banned. You have universal health care, which has been a struggle in the United States. And I think compared to the United States, in most 
migrants say this, that Australia is an easier place to live, that there's, regardless of the history and whatever, there's a general sense of a greater sense of fairness and a greater sense of uh, support, either from the community or the government, which we don't have in the United States in the same way, where there's this sense of every person is for themselves. Yeah. And so I think that affects the characteristics of places in a different way. Like I have to say, living in Australia, there's a sense of less anxiety that I feel compared to when I was living in the United States in Chicago, where I felt I was more on a rat race Mm -hmm. in a way that I don't feel that in Australia. Most people don't feel that the same way in Australia. But, you know, a lot of that has to do with Australia has a population of 20 million people. (laughs) And like, let's say that the New York general area probably has 20 million people. (laughs) It's interesting you mentioned that kind of feeling of, of, um, I don't want to say levity. I guess that might be a good way to put it. When you're living in, in Australia as to how it is here in the States, Douglas Turner, who I just interviewed recently, said that same thing. He was from New York, went to school in North Carolina, worked for Apple for a number of years, and then moved to Iceland Mm. and worked and lived in Iceland, raised a family for about eight years. And the way that he spoke about it was in this way where it felt like, I think the terms that he used was that it was like a vacation from being black. (laughs) In terms of like the societal expectations and stereotypes and pressures, like he could just be uh-huh. And then he said it was different when he came back to the U.S. But I guess, I don't know, that part that you mentioned sort of stuck out to me. Yeah, unfortunately, I don't think Aus- because of its Australia history, because of Australia's history, I never feel like I'm on a vacation from being black. <laughs> like I said, there's a lot of institutional racism. There's a lot like in Melbourne, where I live, it's individually, it's OK. But I've, you know, I've been in situations in Sydney or Brisbane or other cities where it's like, where am, am I in DC? <laughs> it's like, why oh, can't wow. I, why can't I get a taxi? <laughs> wow. Why is this person following me in this shop? <laughs> mm-hmm. So to that extent, I don't think you could ever, because of the history, I could never feel that sense of like relief. In the same way that, let's say, I feel it when I travel to China or in uh, less so, but still there when I travel to India, because there it's just I'm foreign and I'm different, but I'm not black in the sense that all of the uh, overdetermined characteristics that come with that with that perception. Talk to me about some of your travel, because your work and your research is taking you pretty much all around the world. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I guess the project I'm working on now in the last few years has been this project called Living Blue, where we're looking at the um, meaning of indigo dyeing as a process and consumption in India and China, just to compare the two places because they're both undergoing rapid change. And so looking at something that has a long history like indigo is a good way to look at changing values as the societies have been changing. So for the last two years, I've spent at least two or three months in either India or China working sometimes with students, working 
doing interviews, learning how to do indigo dyeing myself, and just facilitating mostly a conversation between Australia, particularly Indigenous Australia, China, and India of how we want to approach the changes that each of these, these societies are going through in terms of the relationship between rural values and urban values, which are changing in terms of the acceleration of change, where things are changing so fast that it's hard for people to keep up. And that's causing a lot of depression and causing a lot of stress and anxiety and craft is seen as a way of tapping into those more traditional values where people think think life was easier in terms of being slower pace of life, having more leisure, having a deeper sense of who you are than what they feel today. So we've been really looking at that and exploring that both to try to get young students, especially in China, interested in their cultural heritage. And in India, really focused on how do we get young Indian designers to figure out how they want to balance the traditional values with the contemporary influences of the United States and Europe and Middle East and all these kind of global pressures that they find themselves having to respond to as one of the two next global superpowers, perhaps, in the next 50 years or so. As you've done your travel, have you found that a lot of cultures, I guess, look to the U.S. in terms of the application and the the breadth of design? I think they look to the U.S. to bring what is new. Okay. They look to the U.S. in terms of money, (laughs) Uh, what they should be focused on in terms of what would bring more money, what would bring a bigger market. Although what's interesting is that I think what people forget, though, is that they're not looking at U.S. as a monolithic. Like, for example, you know, in India, when they say they want to market to the U.S. or spread to the U.S., they want to spread to the... Indian communities that live in the U.S. Oh, you know, okay. I mean, the fact that the U.S. is made up of all of these diasporic communities is that their target isn't like, quote unquote, necessarily Caucasian America. Their target is really the communities that their diasporic communities that exist in these places and have over the last five, 10 years generate a a tremendous amount of economic power. So it's very interesting in that sense where, you know, and I think this is much stronger in the Indian context where, you know, it's like with indigo dyeing, they want to sell their saris in New York, um, but they want to sell the saris to New York to Indian members of the Indian community who live in New York or New Jersey, or they want to have them for, you know, they want to hold their wedding at a large hotel in Los Angeles (laughs) and then develop all the designs that go to support that. And that's actually, again, that was really quite surprising for me to find out in terms of, again, who they consider to be what they're aiming for when they think of American design. That is so interesting to, to know that because I feel like here in the States, a lot of what, I don't know, American design is almost... It doesn't feel like it even reaches those other ethnic communities, especially just in terms of 
what we see reflected back in media, conferences, etc. But even in application, you don't see design, I guess, not on a, on a broad sense, trickling down into those other communities. So it's interesting to know that worldwide, those other cultures are looking to kind of, I don't want to say fill in the gap, but like you said, they're not looking at the U.S. as a whole. They're looking at these pockets mm. within the U.S. where they know that they can reach them culturally. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, that's like the great opportunity uh, that design in its current lack of diversity is really missing out on. And it becomes quite crucial in the sense that, like, again, the demographics of the United States are changing rapidly. And the fact that we do not have a community of professional designers, right, who represent the same diversity that you find in the population like that's that's huge in terms of what's going to be perceived in the future as the value of design and again it's not going to be like in a stereotypical way it's like you know like my Chinese American students and my Chinese students like it's like we don't need to have red dragons on everything but there is a way in which you're inability to authentically speak to the values of those communities and again make that manifest through the communications you're establishing if you can't do that you're not there is no profit there is no market and globally like again they may stop having designed in the united states to be able to access those values it may have to be designed in mexico designed in india designed in China. And those places are really developing their design skills to the extent where it's, it's like, okay, they will fill in the gap. <laughs> yeah. They will fill in the gap. Speaking of design in the U.S., one thing that caught me as I read your bio was that you organized the U.S. National Design Policy Initiative. I didn't even know that that was a thing. Oh, um, <laughs> Can you tell us more about it, like how it came to be? And I guess what can designers today do to help with that initiative? Yeah. So this came out of the work that we did for Design for Democracy in the sense that we had done a lot of the design. And, and one of the great accomplishments of Design for Democracy was developing the national standards for ballot design and signage for all the United States. So, yay, <laughs> Design for Democracy <laughs> for doing that. And so coming through out of that experience, you know, for me, I'm like, well, the next area is policy. Like, how do we affect policy? How do we put the regulations in place that allows for design to be able to scale the effect that it has on people's understanding of whether or not we're in a democracy. And so the opportunity came, I think, with the Obama election, <laughs> the first one, <laughs> where, yeah. again, this this idea of, like, yes, we can. And I was really inspired by that. And I had, I had won a German Marshall Fellowship, so I was able to travel to Europe where they have established design policy. So I was able to, you know, talk to people in Slovenia, talk to people in Germany, talk to places where they have an established design policy and have had them for many years in Denmark. And I'm like, well, where's the U.S. design policy? Where do we have one? And 
We've had one. I mean, this is the thing that was most fascinating is that since the establishment of like the National Endowment for the Arts, Nixon in particular had actually established this sort of federal design policy around what we labeled sort of design for democratic governance, where they established all of like a rebranding of all the different government agencies so that it could speak more clearly to, you know, the American citizenry, a lot of the efforts around sustainability and design for inclusion through the, you know, Americans Disabilities Act, all those things had been endorsed. There was four different design symposiums held that was to bring together, you know, business, government, and the design community to figure out how design can make government matter to people. So inspired by that work in the 1970s, which then disappeared when Reagan came in, <laughs> that I was like, well, we have this opportunity where there's a new language around the role of government and how people can engage with government. Let's do something in the design community to do that. So we established the, we had the first U.S. National Design Policy Symposium in 2009. And that one, like a lot of people didn't hear about that one because I wasn't very sure it was going to work. So we didn't widely advertise it. You know, I mean, we invited all of the heads of the professional design associations. We invited members of the uh, big federal design agencies like the General Services Administration and the National Park, the different agencies, and then the design accreditation bodies. And we met in D.C. at the offices of the German Marshall uh, Fund. And, you know, for two days, we figured out what's the landscape in terms of what everyone is doing around design that affects either our economic competitiveness or, you know, the way in which we function as a democracy and figure out what it is that we could do. And, you know, we came up with 64 different suggestions, which we boiled down into 10 policy recommendations. And we, you know, Matt Munoz and one of my students, Renata, designed everything. <laughs> and mm -hmm. we printed it up and we sent it to every member of the incoming Congress when Obama had sort of been in confirmed as the next president. So we sent it the day of his confirmation to all the members of Congress. And so, you know, that was the outcomes of that was really getting the design community activated in terms of, you know, again, the way we experience the value of democracy is through the stuff we design. It's, you know, if we don't like a website that we have to use to connect with our government, then that makes us feel like, okay, you know, maybe I'm not living in democracy. <laughs> if our ballots are designed in such a way that our votes are miscount, then we feel like we're not a member of the democracy. So everything that we think about in terms of democracy, like there's a tangible design manifestation of that. So how do we affect policy to make sure that we're getting the best designs from the design community as a way of driving government? How do we make sure the language that is used, you know, communicates effectively and clearly? How do we make sure that the uh, designs that we use are safe? <laughs> All those things are really, you know, we really tried to activate within the design community. And, you know, we held another symposium two years afterwards. And then we haven't been able to hold another symposium, mostly because 
a lot of the activities that we established and the principles that we established there was taken over by the National Endowment for the Arts, which they release Design Matters newsletter every month. They're traveling all over the place. They, you know, developed a, a report on the economic contribution of the arts, and most of that was driven by design um, in the United States. So a lot of the things that we thought were important in terms of the initiative was taken on by the National Endowment for the Arts, which is, you know, what we wanted to do is I was explaining to someone that U.S. national design policy is not about having a piece of paper that says this is the U.S. national design policy. Yeah, It's about embedding design thinking, design consideration in terms of the things that are made into every fiber of the government. And that's happening, you know. <laughs> that the uh, General Services Administration has established this kind of like user experience innovation lab, which is staffed by some of the people who were part of Design for Democracy. And so all of those things have kind of really happened through kind of just the initiative of bringing everyone together mm-hmm. and showing, oh, actually, we can do these things. There's a framework in which we can do the things that we need to do. So I guess to ask the last part, what is it that people can do? I mean, I think it's all about the local. I mean, this is so hard for people to really understand because they're like, I want to be part of the big national thing. But it's like everything happens locally. So it's about going to your local chamber of commerce, (laughs) going to your local council meetings and being present and then showing them through proof of concept or whatever it is that that design can make the act of governing more effective. It's about being present locally in the way in which your communities are governed, that people can have the most significant impact. Because all of that, then, then people can feel it and they can experience it in a way that, yes, we can have lots of regulations and things on, on paper, But I always try to remember that, you know, the United States wrote, in many ways, one of the most elegant constitutions in the world. And it took them until 1964 (laughs) to actually implement it in a Mm -hmm. way that has actually lived up to the principles that it was meant to express. So having these elegant statements don't mean as much as being on the ground where people can affect the change and people can feel the effect of the change more directly, that is possible through, again, design. So let me tell you how this is a small world. I know Matt Munoz. Mm -hmm. We met, well, I mean, I don't know him like super well, but I spoke at the Hopscotch Design Festival this year because he's currently in Raleigh. And I think him and I like maybe might have passed a little bit, like just in passing, like we had a conversation. So it's so interesting how this like loops back together. I didn't know that he was also sort of involved with this. But no, I like what you said about the ways that designers can get involved with this is to sort of get involved with local government in some way. And in a small way, like you said, go to a chamber meeting, talk to your district councilman or city councilman or whatever. I've worked here in Atlanta on a few mayoral campaigns. So I've worked a little bit with local government in a design capacity. So it's good to know that even those kinds of small things can sort of work up and and affect change, you know, doing things like designing ballots and designing websites. So they're more, you know, accessible and things like that. The government also, I think, is trying to do a little bit 
around this with 18F mm-hmm. and the U.S. Digital Service kind of uh, showing more how technology can be used towards the greater good for government. Shout out to the Obama administration for that. <laughs> so I feel like it's still there's still like a connection, I think, that needs to be made like between the local and the national. But designers can get involved by getting involved locally. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the thing is, is that nationally, I don't know, the work there, I think, is more difficult in the sense that a lot of it is about the, the it gets mired in politics in a way that locally, yes, you're mired in politics. But again, there's a greater sense of accountability. So it's like your local council person, right? They are accountable to you. So they can't the politics can work better in your favor in the sense that it, it brings a sense of accountability where on the national level, like again, nationally, you know, the government likes to work with organizations and especially big organizations, right? And that was, the initiative was about bringing together those organizations so that we could we could walk through the door and have the conversations. And so I think You know, as an individual designer, if you're on the board of an association, then make sure you're raising your hand saying we should be engaged with the government in a way that's not just lobbying, Mm -hmm. but in a way that's actually, you know, directly having impact. But if you're a designer, an everyday designer, like that's how you make your impact is on the local level. Designers do amazing work, but if you're doing a good job, you know, it's invisible. <laughs> so right, you kind of right. have to show them the impact that it has. It has to be visible to them because if not, they'll just take it for granted and assume we're designing by default. One of the, I guess, overarching themes, a lot of the stuff that you've mentioned is social justice and design and how these two can kind of work together. Aside from what you mentioned with the U.S. National Design Policy Initiative, what are ways that designers, because I know we have a lot of designers that listen, particularly black designers, how can they start to use their design for good, for social justice? How can we sort of harness that power of design to use in our communities? This is something also that I thought about a lot from the Black and Design Conference Mm -hmm. that I attended in Harvard in October. It was very much that same kind of pervasive question Like, how do we use design to affect and change our own communities? Okay, I guess it's sort of, we'll we'll take a specific topic, I think, to talk about that. And it it had to do something that conversation that I had with my aunt when I was visiting Cincinnati, who's a retired educator. And and so we were talking about the phenomena of driving while black. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And and, you know, my cousins are all male. And so she was explaining to us how the process that she used to suggest to my male cousins how they avoid harassment by the police when they're driving. And she had suggested to them two things. One, to actually go into the police office, you know, wherever the local one where the policeman keeps stopping them. And be on your cell phone talking to like your mom or someone else and saying, I'm arrived at the police station and, you know, go up to the counter and tell them, you know, my name is whatever, whatever. I want to be able to register to let you know that I'm going to be passing through here on my way to study at college, blah, blah, blah. And if there's any issues, you know, I want you to know that blah, 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 whatever. So just making themselves present in a way that. How do we make the police accountable? 
as a community. The thing that I saw that was really interesting, the second thing that she suggested is actually when you are pulled out over, like do not engage directly. In fact, what she had is like there's this little sign that she sort of suggested that they have where it sort of says, basically, I'm not going to respond in this particular way. I'm going to show you I'm not going to open my window, Mm -hmm. but I'm going to present to you my license and registration. And and if there's any significant issues, then this is the number of the lawyer who you should call. (laughs) And I just thought to myself, it's like, okay, from a design perspective, Okay, you have this this monitoring process that you have to do, but you also have this communication that you need to give to the police in a way that keeps you safe within the car, right? Because all the things happen once you get out of the car. Right. And so it's like, okay, what is it that we could do as designers to establish a system? Like, okay, that sign, do we have where it has like, you know, children on board or or a parent on board or whatever, do we establish, let's say, of signage that goes on cars that actually then conveys a certain type of information to the police in terms of what will happen, what is the proper process that we're going to go through in terms of this interaction to make sure that we are both safe in this? Mm -hmm. What is the design intervention that can be made in that communication? How does that need to be set up and established? And, you know, and that's like tackling like the, the, the most negative aspect of our experience here. But it's again, like there's a social solution to this, which has to do with police training and all these other things. But there is also a design solution around this, because what is what is happening is there's a breakdown in terms of the interactions. And then there's a breakdown in terms of the communication. Well, who is it the groups that sort of nudge the best interactions? That's designers. Who is it that are supposed to be the masters of communication. Those are the designers. So there's mm-hmm. a way in which if we have to think more systematically around how do we understand those experiences and design the kind of interventions in those experiences that, okay, it's not the protest signs that you put out there, you know, in front of the police station or in front of the mayor's office, but it actually might be the effective communication either in form or content that actually keeps this young man safe as he's trying to drive from one town to another. And so these are the kind of things that I think are design opportunities that we haven't really looked at because we don't think of them. We don't see the design problem Mm -hmm. that is within that social issue. I remember, I think this, God, this might've been a few weeks ago. There was a guy in Texas, in Arlington, Texas, that did something very similar to what you mentioned, like that had the sign. It said he got pulled over by the police and the sign said, I remain silent, mm-hmm. no searches. I want my lawyer. Mm-hmm. And then underneath there was some more writing. It was like, please put any tickets under the windshield wiper. I do not have to hand over my license by this section code. Thus, I am not opening my window. Like it was all on a sign that he just put up to the window when he got pulled over. So again, I've seen that video as well, but that's, but I'm saying like what makes this a a wider issue is that like, again, that's the advice that my aunt had given everything. So clearly there are other mothers or other lawyers or other people within the community that are sharing the same message around how you keep yourself safe. So it's like, so that's what makes it a design 
opportunity, right? Because it's not just about these individuals who are doing that, right? It's about there's a collective community, a mass, if we want to sort of say. There is a mass of community that needs to be able to engage with this kind of conversation. So instead of it doing it, like, why is it that someone has to create that message on a laptop computer and have it printed out? Why isn't there a design, quote unquote, product Mm. that understands that situation and then tries to tries to provide it to a wider group of people who need that communication tool. Well, if anyone from the Designers Guild of Justice is listening, <laughs> you have your you can have- work on this. Yeah, this is an opportunity. <laughs> Where do you see yourself in the next 5 years? I mean, it seems like there's so much activity around the work that you're doing. It's such a dynamic field right now, it sounds like. I don't know. It's kind of like I'm in a a major transition, I guess, in terms of figuring out where I can be most effective. Or I guess another way to say it is like, you know, my relationships to institutions are always been somewhat instrumental. And so for me, you know, the next thing is figuring out which institution will allow me to continue this quest to bring together design and anthropology and social justice in a way that is effective in changing people's lives. And I haven't really decided where that's going to be. Like, you know, I'm still very much engaged in design education, but the education system is changing a lot to make it much more difficult to for many institutions to maintain that critical perspective on society. Like mm-hmm. the I guess one says the commodification of the education system is having significant impact on these educational institutions being centers for social and economic justice. And so there's the big question of like, okay, do I continue to fight within those institutions to transform them in that way? Or is can I leverage another institution to be able to do that? So right now I'm actually quite exploring is like, do I want to be engaged more with foundations through the money they have are actually able to sort of shift and nudge things in a certain direction? Do I want to still continue to engage with design education? Do I want to go back to industry? Do I want to do consulting? All these things mm-hmm. I haven't quite decided yet because, like I said, for me, I know what it is that I want to do. And then it's very, very clear to me what that is. Right now, it's just trying to find the right institutional structure that allow me to do that in the States because I'm definitely keen on, I think, the United States is in an interesting point of transition, both in terms of demographics shifting, also in terms of kind of mentalities and attitudes. I mean, I think, you know, like the current election is quite instructive in terms of even if you look at the Republican candidates, like we have oh. we have an African American, we have a a Trump. Yeah, well, I was trying to find a, a diplomatic <laughs> way to describe uh, an entrepreneurial <laughs> entertainer. That's a good way to put it. We have, you know, like two Hispanic Americans, you know, so it's like even if you and they're all spouting sort of things that are not necessarily beneficial to the greater good of everyone. But even to have that profile says that there's something that is shifting in the United States. And I think in the same way that I moved to Australia because I was excited about what was happening in Asia Pacific and I wanted to get a feel for what those 
those shifts and changes are. I want to come back to the United States because I think there's an interesting shift that's happening here that if I can find the right institution might be a great point of leverage in terms of accelerating some of the things that we can do in terms of promoting social and economic justice through through anthropology and design. Well, Dory, this conversation has, my goodness, this conversation has went a lot of places. But just to kind of wrap everything up, where can our audience find out more about you online and the work that you're doing? The best ways to find out about me is that every two weeks I write a column for The Conversation in Australia. So if you like Google, The Conversation Australia, Elizabeth Tunstall or just Tunstall, it'll come up pretty quickly. And so I write a column called Undesign, where I look at uh, sort of the global understanding of culture and design. And I talk about politics and gender. And, you know, I do analysis of the social value of certain objects that we design. It's quite, as this conversation has been, it's quite diverse in its topics. Mm -hmm. But the focus is very much within the methodology of design anthropology, where we're looking at what's the values How does that relate to the design that comes out and people's experiences? And what are some of the interesting things people are doing to redesign either objects and things or reconsider value so that people have better experiences? Well, I'll definitely make sure to put a link to that Mm. in the show notes. I want to read that column, too. That sounds amazing. (laughs) Well, Dory Tunstall, thank you so much for coming on the show. My goodness. I, I, I... Wow. I don't even really know where to start just in terms of, no, because your work, I mean, when I first heard of design anthropology, of course, I was like, I need to find out more about exactly what this is. But then to see just how your work has touched people worldwide Mm -hmm. in terms of how design is used for social justice things, how we just use design in the things that we make and consume. Because like you said, uh, before we started this, this conversation, you know, everything that we do passes through some lens or filter of design. And so because of that, it's important to kind of have this really broad multicultural way of approaching design or even have multicultural practitioners of design in order to create the solutions that can be used by everyone. So thank you so much thank for coming on much. the show. I really appreciate thank it. Thank you for inviting me. Like I said, I'm, I'm quite impressed by the work that you're doing as well. And I'm glad to uh, be able to contribute to the conversation. Thoughts of love are in and that's it for this week. Big thanks to Dory Tunstall, and of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Dory and her work with the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Thanks, of course, as always, to our sponsors, MailChimp, Hover, and Creative Market. When it comes out to email marketing, MailChimp makes it extremely simple. They've got really great reporting features, they've got autoresponders, and you can send 12,000 emails to 2,000 subscribers for free. No contracts and no credit card required. Check them out at MailChimp.com. Hover is the best way to buy and manage domain names, and they give you exactly what you need to get the job done. Get yourself a new domain or transfer your current domains to Hover, and you can save 10% off your first purchase. Just use our promo code, GIVETHANKS, at checkout. And lastly, there's Creative Market, which is a marketplace that sells beautiful, ready-to-use design content from thousands of independent creators from around the globe. Head over to creativemarket.com, pick up those six free goods that are available for free every week, check out the November Big Bundle, and if you see something else that you like, use our discount code REVISIONPATH and save 20% off your purchase. 
This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro audio by Yellow Speaker. Make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes. Leave us a rating and a review. It really helps us get new listeners. I'll even read your review right here on the show, just like I did for Culture AD at the top of the show. Revision Path is a 318 media project. If you like the work we're doing with the podcast and the website, then visit us over at Patreon and become a patron. Just go to patreon.com forward slash revision path and pledge your support. Pledge level started just $1 per month and you'll get access to behind the scenes information about the show, upcoming interviews, and so much more. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time.